So well-being to me, you know, is is a state of it's really a state of flourishing in all aspects of your life. So, you know, are you are, are you using your talents and abilities um, to make a difference in the world? Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm so honored and thankful to see, and I'll make sure I say this name correctly, Dr. Sand Katyal. Yep. All right. I even got the right spin. <laughs> um, Dr. Katyal has some uh, really interesting story in a program about positive psychology for physicians. He's written a book, and we'll get into all of that. But I, I know the audience is familiar that me talking about positive psychology and the many benefits, but it'll be really nice to speak to another physician who has an interest, a keen interest in helping other physicians. And I think that's such an important thing, especially given the state of affairs with our mental health and everything. So Dr. Kachel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in medicine and positive psychology? Sure. I uh, grew up in Pittsburgh and I uh, did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon here and uh, decided late to go to medical school, uh, which I did at NYU uh, School of Medicine. And I entered radiology back here at uh, University of Pittsburgh, internship, residency, and fellowship, and uh, was really uh, interested in research for quite a while. And then I got more involved in the business of radiology. So I worked as a physician executive for a radiology startup company for about 10 years. And it was over that time where I was visiting a lot of different hospitals that I started noticing a lot of discontent among physicians. I would visit other, uh, you know, medical executive committee meetings, talk to uh, hospital administrative leaders, and it became clear that uh, something was going on in medicine over the last 10 years. And I could kind of relate it to my own story because I, I remember one day, I don't know, maybe 12, 12 years ago, driving home and I was kind of thinking to myself, wondering why I wasn't happier. It's not that I was unhappy, but I had achieved really more than anything I could have ever dreamed of. Uh, you know, I was married to my best friend. We have a great relationship. We have four healthy kids. Uh, like I had a great job that I really liked. Uh, I was designing kind of innovative workflow. Uh, and growing up, I really had no tr real tragedy, uh, you know, had uh, enough money, parents are all alive, live close by. And I became, uh, I began to really wonder and really got concerned if I couldn't figure out how to experience more joy and fulfillment when things were this good, how was I ever really going to deal with adversity when it would inevitably come, uh, which by the way, it did. So I really began searching for answers and Really, I was searching for answers to a single question. How can I learn not just to function, but to actually flourish? And that's what drove me to study philosophy. And I was reading a book called Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar, uh, who's, who's claimed to fame as he taught the largest class at Harvard in positive psychology uh, in the late 90s. I reached out to him and asked, you know, I told him I loved the book. It was a kind of a scientific model of happiness and I asked how I could learn more. 
and he invited me to uh, apply to a one-year kind of intensive program in positive psychology that he was running, which I completed uh, along with positive psychology coaching. And, uh, you know, as an engineer and then as a, as a physician, the scientific background and uh, emphasis of positive psychology uh, really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and uh, I've been deep into it ever since. That's really interesting. So I, I like how you said, you know, everything in your life was going well per society's judgment, right? So you had the possessions and the relationships that would uh, essentially tell you you should be happy. So I think we misunderstand what that means because then you mentioned the word joy. So can you explain the difference between happiness versus joy? Yeah, sure. You know, I really try not to use the word happy. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's overused and I think the most uh, the reason I have the biggest problem with it is because it's really used incorrectly. Uh, you know, if I ask people, do you want to be happy? The answer is, of course. If I then ask them, well, what does it mean to be happy? The answer becomes a little less obvious, right? Uh, you know, I was happy last weekend when I was on call, or I'll be happy in two weeks when I'm on vacation. And that's not the kind of happiness that Aristotle was talking about when he made his famous quote, you know, that happiness is the uh, end and uh, uh uh, aim of human existence, right? The, the word that he and other philosophers used was eudaimonia, which is really translated to mean human flourishing, right? A state of optimal living over a long period of time. And so that's what I, that, that's the word, flourishing is the word that I use. And that's the word that Dr. Seligman uses in his book, Flourish, right? That's, that's why he uses it, right? What what has to go right in all aspects of our lives over a long period of time, not just how do I feel today or yesterday when I'm going through, uh, you know, whatever it is you go through at whatever stage of training you're in. Exactly. My daughter, my oldest is a second year medical student. So I have a keen interest in making sure she stays on the flourishing side of things. So I think it's uh, important for all of us as physicians and parents and teachers and, you know, anyone who has um, some type of experience or job or some type of relationship where we're teaching others to listen to what you're saying and understand. I like how you, how you said that. It's like optimal living over a long period of time. So very cool. And so you have, you went on and you did your, your program. Can you tell us what that was like? Like, what were you learning what surprised you? Um, just really interested in seeing how that transformed you as a person. Yeah, that was a great program. It was uh, put on by the Whole Being Institute, and, and I strongly encourage people that are interested in in, in this topic to to look into that. Um, it was two one week immersions on the beginning and back end of the course, uh, and then um, a lot of online work and group work uh, via phone calls. And, uh, you know, just the concepts that were taught were just phenomenal concepts. Uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, obviously we touched upon the big ones like grit, resiliency that, that are pretty common in, in, in uh, positive psychology literature, but things like hedonic adaptation, uh, you know, which I think is especially useful for physicians. That's basically a, a principle that was articulated 2000 years ago by the Stoics, but basically says that we adapt to everything 
in our life that's positive and constant, right? So mm. that's why we take for granted our jobs, you know, what, you know, the initial thrill of making an attending salary soon goes quickly away and is replaced by making partner in a group or eventually, you know, when can I retire? You know, you just get used to every stage of your life. And uh, that's a problem for physicians because we, we're masters of delayed gratification, right? We're always put our heads down, work hard. And when we get through this, we can relax, enjoy life, be happy, right? But if you, if you get to that stage and then you get used to that after a while, it's really, really uh, a difficult problem for physicians. And I think one, that concept alone is, it explains a lot of the discontent that many feel. Um, in, in their life. So it was kind of things like that that were really eye-opening. How did this transform in your life? So you you went from looking back and going, why aren't I feeling joy um, and satisfaction, I guess, to after this going back and how, how, how did that change you personally? Uh, it was transformative. I mean, it, it uh, you know, I was able to understand myself more. And a lot of this stuff is just self-awareness too, right? Sometimes we get the habit of just, you know, pushing through things, pushing through problems um, and not stopping to think about, you know, is this the right, am I on the right path? Am I doing the right things in my life? Uh, so this was kind of a pause button for me uh, to do that. And then there were a lot of positive psychology interventions that I experimented with um, yeah. along the way that really made a meaningful impact uh, to me. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example of that hedonic adaptation, the cure for uh, taking everything for granted in your life that's constant, that's there, whether it's your spouse or your kids or whatever, is to learn how to pay attention to them. Um, and cultivation of attention is huge. And I think attention's mm -hmm. going to be the new currency. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me. Uh, and so, you know, that um, the way to pay attention is to really cultivate an attitude of uh, appreciation for the things you have in life. And Tal Ben-Shahar, my mentor, said when, when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. And, and that's really, uh, I think, the cornerstone of, of positive psychology and the scientific study of gratitude and how to cultivate gratitude is perhaps, I think, positive psychology's greatest contribution. Uh, to, to the field. So. I agree. Attention is the new currency, especially in today's world with instant gratification, technology, our faces are in our phones. Yeah. You know, I do telemedicine now and I've been doing that for about a little over a year. And it's really interesting. It used to bug me to no end when on a, a few patients would bring in like their cell phone or they're talking on a phone and, and tell me to wait while they're talking on their phone. That's on crazy. Oh, yeah. I could tell stories. But anyway, outside of that, well, now I'm talking to someone. You think you're going to have to pay eye attention. Like, this is a screen. They'll be, I'll be seeing them on their cell phone. So there's this interactive um, web interaction going occurring. But I can see that they're still typing and paying attention to a computer or watching television. And it just, there are days that I just have to take a deep breath and go, Lori, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I'll say, excuse me, what did you say? Um, can you hear me? <laughs> so just like a nice little interjection like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, and yeah. it is, it's an interesting situation. But I, I think it's really important even for parents, right? Because we want our children 
you know, to cultivate good relationships and understand how to interact with people. I think we're missing to the growing up. These kids are going to miss the subtle cues of facial expressions and body language and, you know, calling someone up and calling them on the phone and meeting them in person. I think we're missing out on that. And I think there's some problems with us as parents too, because we're ignoring our kids. Um, it seems that we're, we're, we're so distracted by other things. And have you seen that occur with um, physicians and as far as their relationships with colleagues or peers or interactions with their spouses and family? Because I, I really think that's important. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a huge problem. I mean, you know, uh, when, I, when I, I ran a large group of about 100 radiologists when I was at a, the startup company, and when after a while it became clear to me that I had to basically take people's phones and people, we had to put their phones down on the end of the table because they just couldn't, it was like, a, it, it was literally an addiction for them. Mm-hmm. And same thing with kids. I mean, I teach a, a positive psychology class at a local college and we had our final presentations yesterday and half the class, what they wanted to fix about themselves or improve about themselves was their cell phone use, their addiction mm-hmm. to it. And so I think you're going to see a lot more cell phone detoxes and Uh, apps that are, you know, designed to, you know, keep our attention as opposed to these, you know, uh, designed right now to just basically hijack as much of it as they they can get. Um, So physicians are are no different. And uh, I think it affects their, their interaction with, with their patients. It certainly interferes with their interaction with uh, their colleagues. Right. I've seen it many times in hospitals. Oh, absolutely. Have you read the book, um, The Craving Mind by Dr. Judson Brewer? No. You might find it interesting. Um, I have it here somewhere. Here it is. So I interviewed Dr. Brewer, and actually I'll be putting up his podcast later. Um, and it's basically, he. it's this one here for people who want to see it. Um, and he's a psychiatrist and also a researcher. He's an MD, PhD. <laughs> one one degree is not enough, yeah. and um, but it's fascinating. His um, his TED talk in 2016 uh, was the fourth most watched, has like 10 million views or something. It's incredible. Yeah. But he's speaking regarding mindfulness and using it in addictions, like with smoking, uh, describing anxiety and different things. But what you were just talking about, how this cell phone use has become an addiction but he describes he talks about it like the habit loop um and you know you get this cue this hat this routine and this reward and there's this negative reinforcement and a positive reinforcement you do something because it feels good but then you do something because it helps you avoid feeling negative so it's really interesting so the cell phone use it's positive because you're seeing people like your stuff but then if they if you find that being distracted by the cell phone makes you forget that you're sad one day, then it reinforces it negative. So then you got this <laughs> double double whammies, you know, just feeding this habit loop and it's really hard to break. And um, you would like, it's a really fascinating book. That's good, I'll check it out. Yeah, and there's another really good one too that I think complements it um, is James Clear's Atomic Habits. Oh yeah, I read that. Um, uh, I interviewed him too. Fascinating story. Great story of, of his, how it all developed. I and mean, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah, you know, I, like, I, like I said, I love this stuff. So I could talk for hours. <laughs> and so whenever you said you'd t- be okay with the interview, I was like, yes. <laughs> I get to talk an hour for, you know, my stuff. And my husband's just like, 
okay. <laughs> he's an engineer, so he's this is funny. It's funny. I know you were an engineer, it sounds like. What type yeah, of engineer were you before? I was a chemical biomedical, but I, I oh. never Okay. I don't he's identify a, as an engineer. Uh, yeah, he's a civil engineer and he's just into data and crunching yeah. numbers and the you know, stuff that would like literally drive me utterly insane. So yeah. anyway, um none of the children wanted to be <laughs> an engineer. He's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, I I'm curious too, what you have a course that you offer um, on your website regarding uh, physicians and uh, the, I believe it's called the positive psychology program for physicians. Yes. And physicians who enter through that, have they been in contact with you and have you seen any changes? Like, can you give an example of where you're like, wow, this is what the stuff really works. This positive psychology can really turn lives around. Yeah, sure. I, the reason I, I, I put it into a website is I've been doing the program informally uh, during my management of about 100 radiologists. So there were a lot of, you know, if you get 100 physicians, there's going to be, it's like a bell curve, right? There's going to be the, the, the top 10% that are, that are high performers and high functioning and doing pretty good. Most people are in between and then there's the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. So I focused on the kind of people that were definitely at the bottom, but also at the lower end of the middle pack. And I just started having these um, sessions with them. And I, and I basically created them in five different sessions. And, and I measured well-being at the beginning and at the end. And there was about a 34% improvement in, in their well-being um, from this program. Now, some people had more, some people had less. But on average, that's basically what it was. How do you measure well-being? There's a couple different scales you can use. Uh, Peggy Kearns uh, out of Australia has a PERMA score, score which PERMA is, is Marty Seligman's kind of latest uh, uh, flourishing uh, components. Uh, there's also on authentichappiness.org, which is a site sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania. There's a bunch of well-being surveys um, and uh, the main well-being survey uh, on that it's pretty easy. It's only like uh, 45 questions or so. And um, that's been, you know, statistically valid. It's been reliable over periods of time. And it's found to uh, uh, change with certain positive interventions that mm -hmm. have been done. So I use a combination of that uh, for people that are a little bit um, lower on the flourishing scale. Uh, I use a, a, the burnout score. But this is, this is, you know, the program is designed for everybody, whether wherever you are on your uh, flourishing scale, right? Traditional psychology focused on somebody who's functioning at a minus eight and bringing them to a zero or a plus one if you're lucky, right? Um, positive psychology focuses on somebody who's a plus one, plus two. Again, functioning fine, successful by every metric of society, but not fulfilling their their unique potential, right? Not thriving, not flourishing. And it takes those people from a plus one or plus two and tries to move them to a plus eight. And I think we need both areas of focus. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for too long, I think, as long as somebody's functioning, we as society feel that they're okay. But there's a lot of unrealized potential and a lot of physicians that I know. 
and the unrealized potential is the cause of their discontent many times. Hmm. I think you're right because I know myself as a physician, um, there was a period of time. So I was active duty in the air force as well for some time. And then I went to Colorado. And so you're seeing as primary care doc, a lot of chronic disease and multiple medications and people are constantly in pain. And, you know, there's a huge, as we all know, uh, rapid rise of not only chronic disease, but depression, anxiety. So then I discovered lifestyle medicine where I focused on positive psychology is part of it, um, nutrition, exercise, but it's the communication with the patient is different. The focus is different. So instead of me saying, I'm going to write you another prescription to control this blood pressure to get these numbers down. I'm, my my voice has changed. My 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 words have changed. So that that whole point of what you described is, you know, we want to study what is right rather than what is wrong. Um, the same idea. I tell my patients. I said it's more than me just getting you to a normal metric that I'm measuring, but I want you to thrive in life. So you have to see me less, if not at all. And that really sparks an interest for patients because nobody speaks like that. So it's really important that we speak hope because it does. It speaks hope into it kind of gets that light going. And that actually keeps me or like the burnout that I was dealing with because nothing is more stressful being an active duty member in the military as a physician yeah. is literally because soldiers and and physicians have some of the highest suicide rates. And I can tell you why. Not that I had that, but you, I saw some things. Um <clears throat> But it's really interesting how you change when you speak to others, you speak differently to yourself. And it's really cool because now you get excited when you see patients like, ooh, a diabetic, I can work on this. <laughs> Before it was like, oh, a diabetic, another blood sugars, who knows what, you know. It's a completely shift on how you're focusing on, and it changes you. It's really cool. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's tremendous. I think medicine needs more of that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You know, um, we had spoken about uh, Carolyn Miller, and um, I just kept telling her, I was like, if I wish I had time and the money to go do the master's program at UPenn for the positive psychology, is that my life is just utter chaos at this point. I got two in college, and I'm doing a, I'm also an editor for a medical journal, and I got my full time job, and I'm like, eh. <laughs> but it's so important to talk to these these young physicians and these medical students to get them on the right path. But then also think about it, the social contagion factor. If we could teach our, these people who have one, their authority figures and people respect them and that social contagion, if I have 2000 on my panel and I teach even a third of them, some type of positive psychology and flourishing that, that effect would just ripple. It'd be that's really exactly cool. Right. And <laughs> that's why, that's why I, that's why I teach physicians because everybody you, you help, helps their patients and it's basically an exponential uh, cascade. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, it's a, a perfect example when I, I help someone, let's say reverse their diabetes and then they teach a family member what they've been learning, which is very simple. This is basic stuff. And then they're, they're seeing these positive things. It's so much more enjoyable to hear those stories um, and it comes back to you. I'm a big fan of karma. <laughs> Put that good stuff out. It comes back. Yeah, so, I agree. <laughs> absolutely. So um, I'm curious too, when you mentioned the word well-being, I think I like the word well-being and I like the word thriving. What does it mean to be have well-being? What, 
what, how can a person um, measure or think to themselves, I'm in a state of well-being or I'm, I need to work on this? Like how, how would someone begin to self-analyze and see what's going on? Well, I use the word well-being cause just because I hate the word happiness because <laughs> there's a lot of you know, uh, <laughs> self-help books and stuff like that out there that just, I yes. think overuse it and I think are, are doing somewhat of a disservice to, to people when they think that you, know, you can instantly choose to be happy without changing your behaviors and your habits um, in a meaningful way. I think that's not, that's not exactly accurate. And uh, so well-being to me, you know, is, is a state of, it's really a state of flourishing in all aspects of your life. So, you know, are you, are, are you using your talents and abilities um, to make a difference in the world, right? That's one aspect of it, right? Are you raising responsible, resilient kids who care about the world and not just their next video game or iPhone version, right? Mm -hmm. um, are you physically, mentally, emotionally fit, right? Are you, you know, using things like, you know, nutrition, yoga, meditation to, it, it really boils down to, are you, are you trying to improve to be the best version of yourself? And then are you using that best self in a service larger than yourself, right? That's, in, in, the, in the nutshell, that's flourishing, right? Mm -hmm. Cultivating your best self and then um, using that to alleviate suffering or make an impact in the world. I like that. Um, I think it goes back to purpose. And yeah. at least I know I've wanted to be a doctor since I was like 10. And when you get to medicine and medical school, you're, I mean, one, it's just fun going through medical school because my kids were uh, five, three and 10 months when I started medical school. Wow. <laughs> you know, I got to make it harder as possible. Um, but what was fascinating was, you know, just surviving that, knowing that we could come out of it intact family <laughs> and they, they weren't too worse for the wear. Um, but actually, when you look back and you and like, I think, was this what I thought it would be? And it was really interesting as you evolve in medicine, right? So you go from a student and you're learning and you're scared to ask questions and you're like, do I have the right answer? Do I not have the right answer? And um, then you go, you know, to your, your fourth year and then they're, they're like, you know, like, come, come to our program, come, you know, you're like, oh, I'm special. Yeah, you're that senior thing. And then you're back down on the really bottom of the totem pole. You know, it's just so interesting to see the swing of things. And if you don't have... I think a solid ground of what you're doing and why you're doing it. It can be, if you're, if you relate yourself to someone's opinion of you and you judge that and you don't have that purpose driven down deep, it can be a, a very, very dark place. And so I, I certainly had seen that with other patients. And I mean, there were moments that I was like, why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> so, but my purpose was like, because I want to take care of people. And that was my driving force, regardless of, like you said, delayed gratification. There's a lot of delayed gratification when you're being told things and anyway. But how, how does someone, do you think, reach that point where they like, so you mentioned activating their best self. How do they determine what is their best self? Because sometimes people, no one sat down and said, you know, what are your desires? What is your your thought process. For example, my youngest, Gabriel, he um, 
thought he wanted to go into medical school. He, <laughs> he was like, he loved, he was loved being a lifeguard and, you know, they were learning how to do CPR. And he's like, he's my one that likes to go snowboarding and jump, you know, rock climbing and all that, you know, high adrenaline stuff. Yeah. Cause I want to be an ER doc mom. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, and he graduated second in his class, phenomenal kid, super bright, communicates well well-grounded. Um, they're good kids. But when he got through his first semester at college in Boulder, Colorado, and he's like, I don't think this is it for mom. I was like, but Gabe, look back at what you've always enjoyed. He's always enjoyed making film and video. I mean, this kid's been doing camera work. And since he was, I mean, I don't know, I can remember the last time he didn't have a camera or filming or making videos and stories and like little documentaries. Gabriel, it's like, follow your passion. That will be. And now he's doing film studies and he's as happy as a lark. He loves it. No one sits down. I mean, if, I, I don't know. How do you begin that conversation with someone? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think looking back to what you like, love to do as a child can offer a lot of clues to what, what feels right to you. Uh, you know, I think staying, um, staying true to your childhood aspirations and interests before you got indoctrinated by society is, a, is a, is an important thing. You know, the other thing is there's a whole field of character strengths, right? That these are unique attributes that positive psychology is, is, has elucidated for us, right? It's basically the positive version of the DSM. <laughs> organized under six major virtues, right? So I love that. That's the absolute antagonist to the DSM. That's I love that. Basically, right? <laughs> that uh, is it. Oh my gosh! For those who don't know, the DSM is a book of description of mental health disorders. <laughs> it's an easy way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Thank it's you. on like, like you know ninth edition or whatever it is. Or yeah, oh, I don't even know. But um. Yeah, so character strengths, you know, what, what are unique strengths? Everybody has three to five strengths that are kind of uniquely there. So that, so this is, this is a strength that when you, you can't help but exhibit it. When you exhibit it, things flow easier. You uh, are excited, uh, you know, when, when you're displaying this strength. And these are strengths like, you know, uh, kindness, you may know people that are more compassionate than others. Compassion's one, uh, optimism, gratitude, and uh, love of learning. I, you know, that's number one for me. That's my number mm -hmm. one strength. And you know, it makes sense when you think about it. So if you can, if you can, be more self-aware, understand what what it is that makes you tick. And now there's mm -hmm. a little formal way to figure that out, and then use your strengths every day or try to use them every day, uh, whether it's in your job or your free time, you end up being much, much happier and you end up actually being more successful, right? People think I'm going to be successful and then I can be happy, right? The, the equation's actually reversed, right? There's happy people are more successful. They have higher incomes. They have better relationships. They, they succeed more in uh, their careers in terms of higher uh, positions. Uh, so, you know, the, I think that's the, that's the other thing that trips doctors up is it's always been about achievement first and then happiness. Whereas if you can reverse that, you'll get the achievement, but you'll also more importantly get the happiness. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. It's a chicken egg kind of question, but I think you're, I think you're right. The well-being and happiness have to come, and then the successful and achievement will follow. That's really good. Good points. Um, mine were bravery and kindness. <laughs> so really interesting stuff. Um, and I like the idea that you were mentioned using your character strengths every day. So I think that would lead down a path of uh, searching for some type of purpose. Can you give an example where someone would maybe use one of those character strengths and like how it would actually work in like a job situation or something like, so just like a concrete example, because, you know, bravery and kindness and optimism, they're kind of non-tangibles. How, how do you do, how do you use something like that as a tool? Yeah. So I, I work with a physician who's one of his, I think it was his second or maybe third strength was gratitude, hmm. uh, but he was, he was a pretty discontent individual. Um, and so what, what we talked about was figuring out ways to cultivate gratitude um, every day in work. And he was a radiologist. So one of the things I wanted to get, and I think from a radiologist perspective, we can really infuse a sense of meaning uh, in medicine by when we read, you know, we read about 100 cases a day typically, and that's a lot, right? Uh, CTs, MRIs, x-rays. But if you can look at every third case and try to relate that demographic to somebody you know and read that case in the, from the eyes of reading it for your aunt or your friend's mother or wh whatever, you really, it really infuses a, a really powerful sense of purpose rather than just going through a work list and banging out a bunch of cases. So that was one thing. The other thing is how do you cultivate gratitude? And, and, you know, we had him do three good things every night. That worked pretty well for him. The, the thing that really worked was negative visualization. So when he would drive home, and I, I, these are all the things that I did after that year uh, of positive psychology. And, you know, I learned all these interventions and you pick and choose what works and what doesn't. And you, sometimes you have to mix them up. But you know, if you can, when you're driving home, and this doesn't take more than 30 seconds, imagine what your life would be like if you mentally subtracted one of the good things from your life. So I said, imagine what your life would be like if you no longer had your job and you were, your group had imploded and you had to go out, brush up your CV, go interview, find a group of people that you liked. You know, we respond much better to bad than good you know our brains are wired that way mm -hmm. and so mentally subtracting something good and really imagining your life without that your kids are no longer living with you they're off to college you know if they're they're you know like i did this when my kids were younger they're you know i'd come home and there'd be clutter and there'd be chaos and all that stuff and i started thinking well someday they're not going to be here and now my oldest is about to go to college next year. And it's true. So <laughs> you can imagine yourself without your kids living with you. Mm -hmm. It makes all that other stuff. It doesn't eliminate it, but it makes it much, much better to, to uh, appreciate. And, and that's what happened with him. He really appreciated his job. He appreciated his sense of newfound sense of meaning in reading cases. So. Mm. I think that's some really cool stuff. So on the other end of things, um, I, you know, being a physician who will order those tests and wait for the radiologists to come back and having either, you know, a, a concerning 
diagnosis or reassuring diagnosis. There is a real life person on the end of that report. And I think that's brilliant, Um, especially from someone who, you know, you're sitting in a dark room all day (laughs) looking at different things. It'd be very quick just to say, oh, this is just another photo. It is another organs, but forget there's a living human breathing on that. And, um, the, you know, I think that's a really good idea too. Cause I, um, I was in Florida, uh, t- when did I move there? It was in 2016 uh, for a really awesome job doing lifestyle medicine, bringing people in amazing opportunity. And we were open for six months, but our private investors pulled out literally overnight. So I had no job and I'd never been unemployed in my life. And I'm, you know, I make more of the money in the household and I was like, Oh, <laughs> and so it, it took, um, it was quite uh, something that I had never experienced. And um, so I can look back on those experiences. And then I've had three leave me to go off to college. Luckily, there's no more. Um, but my daughter, when she left, she's my oldest. She's 24 now. And uh, I got physically ill um, when we dropped her off. And she was only four hours away. Granted, it was over the Rocky Mountains. We were in Colorado at the time. And I was just, I'd never been so like, Oh, cause I identified as a mom, right? That was my, that's what I live for. I mean, I love these kids. So when I see my patients and they're, I'm looking at their little ones and they're calling their little snotty noses and they're just frazzled, their hair is all crazy. And I'm like, appreciate those days cause they're going to be gone. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. So I do, I miss those days of loving. Oh, I could talk about kids forever too. So I can't imagine a fourth one. Jeez Louise. I was already outnumbered with three. <laughs> oh man. But it's so much fun. Um, just, I know we are pushing in towards the 45 minutes or an hour here. I could, boy, I could ask a lot of different questions. Is there anything um, that you would have to say regarding specifically um, with physician suicide? Because I think it's a topic that it was taboo for many times, but there's been a lot of work. Um, there's a doctor, Pamela Weibel. I don't know if you're familiar with her, um, but she works a lot with obviously with suicidal, fa- you know, with families and um, really bringing to light the issues with medicine and um, our mental health and our state. As far as physician suicide, do you feel or any evidence or help for those who may be teetering um, and where would you suggest or how would maybe some type of intervention with positive psychology be helpful to someone who's like, you know, I'm heading down the wrong path. I don't like where I'm going. Um, any suggestions or um, advice? Yeah, I mean, physician suicide, I think, is a big problem in medicine. Uh, and I think it's not helped by the fact that our licensing and credentialing board asks all those questions. So I think that's the first step from a, from a um, regulatory standpoint that has to change. You have to have a more open culture about that. And it can't just be about wellness committees, which are important and stuff like that, but you have to really address the stigma of uh, a uh, mentally impaired physician mm-hmm. and that you, there's an easier pathway to, to get help and to stay in the system as opposed to being ostracized. So I think that's, because that's what, that's, I mean, we, we have a lot of sunk time and costs right into medicine. So you, you can't just easily give that up. And a lot of people will just try to, you know, um, 
put their heads down and try to get through it and then, and then, then they can't. And it's a really quick transition from the time they realize they can't to the time they're dead. Mm. And that's the real problem. Um, so I think, you know, I think well-being index, um, there's a medical student well-being index, there's a physician well-being index. I think those are important to identify people that are maybe at risk. Mm. And I think there should be, um, you know, a, a total privacy physician to physician peer um, group. And, and I was actually toying around with the idea of like, you know, you have all these smart physicians that want to make a difference. Why, why not just get a, a consortium of them and create this group for physicians, create this, you know, confidential peer to peer group for physicians that somebody can talk to whatever institution you are, whatever specialty and, um, and try to catch them before, you know, they, uh, they make that decision. So you know, those are, those are a couple things in terms of positive psychology. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that think positive psychology is the answer to everything. I, I think there are people that are, that have uh, real severe depression, severe anxiety, severe, uh, mental health issues that, that need psychiatric help, need ho inpatient hospitalizations, need medicine to get them over their acute phase. I'm not, I, I, I don't think that, you know, um, writing about how grateful you are can, can pull somebody out of a severe depression. And I think that's, that's some of the problems I have with some some people in in positive psychology is that they think well you don't need antihypertensives because if you just meditate you'll be good um that may be true but it's also just it, it's really um uh i think uh what's the word i'm looking for but it's it's irresponsible i think for a lot of people right mm -hmm. and so medicine meditation is great it's you know it's uh, uh recommended by the American Heart Association for a variety of things, but there are some people that need antihypertensives. And just like there are some people that are on that end of the mental health spectrum that need traditional medicine, and tr but we just need to make it easier to get to that. Mm. There's a lot to unpack here. I like the idea of your consortium. So if you ever do that, let me know. Um, it'd almost be like you'd have a, a helpline just for physicians manned by physicians um manned by physicians but i mean who best to you know and, and you know you'd have to have some training and stuff like that yeah, but you know, for sure. physicians would 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 be you know we're lone wolves by nature right so yeah. they you know they may be more apt to call a physician peer group than they would a national suicide hotline right yeah absolutely i mean um yeah the training would be very helpful i mean i trained um, before I went into medical school, um, I did a rape crisis hotline. And um, boy, that changes how you see people in crisis, right? Instead of being judging, you're just like, wow, when you're, they're in full blown crisis, it's, it's a, it's different to be on the other end of such a thing. <clears throat> but I think you're right. I don't think people understand who are lay people who don't have a medical degree when it comes to um, licensure. So as in telemedicine, I have 13 medical licenses in 13 states right now. So being to renew, but you know, every looks like I have usually eight or nine each year or seven or six each year that renew and they ask the same questions. Yeah. Have you 
been depressed? Um, have you used alcohol or been da 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 da? You know, outside of the med- the legal components of you know, have you been sued or whatever? But they get personal and ask about certain things, which is unfortunate because even let's say if you were seeing a, a, a marriage counselor that qualifies as you know, having seen counselor, um, even if it's not so much you were depressed or, but it really inhibits people reaching out for help. Um, Cause like you said, this is, this is their livelihood. <laughs> it's not like I can just go get retrained tomorrow for a month and be okay. Um, that's exactly, yeah. and that's what the AMA should be doing. I mean, the AMA should be, they have these burnout modules and all that stuff. But what they should really be doing is unlock, paving the path and clearing it of road roadblocks to get people help. Yeah, unfortunately, the AMA does not represent the majority of physicians. No. Um, I haven't been a member of the AMA since medical school um, because there's it's a it's an organization I feel is it's in the political game and it's it's not looking out for its constituents. And so, I think we need to be removed as a as an independent uh, physician body run by physicians who actually really care about physicians. And I, I think that's coming. I think this day and age with the internet and social media and mm-hmm. um, the interactions and meeting people, I've met people online that have become dear friends in real life. So um, I'm thankful for that, but you're right. We need to do something. We need to be removing obstacles versus adding them. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, you know, and I, I agree about the the mental health component because I'll have, it's interesting because I'll have patients who um, have varying degrees. Usually your primary care doc is your first um, gatekeeper for reaching mental health or that's who they reach out to. So you may have someone who says, I am super depressed and they just basically failed a test, let's say if they're in school. And I have someone else who's literally using the same verbiage the same words, I'm depressing on the verge of jumping off a bridge. And it's really interesting to try to assess that. But I agree, there's there's some things that I'm depressed dealing with my test. I'm depressed, ready to jump off a bridge. And medication is interesting. But there's another book. <laughs> Let's see if you've read this um, or have heard of it. It's called The Inflamed Mind by Dr. Edward Bullmore. No, I read that book. Fascinating. So he's, it's a new type of... Um, theory, and I think I truly believe in it, um, the inflammation or this low level of inflammation that's occurring in systemically, um, inflammation in the brain, that he's estimating about a third of cases of anxiety and depression are related to this inflammation. Um, and it's an interesting story that he tells, but <clears throat> he, uh, um, I think he's from England and, um, the, curious thing was I read a case report of a young gentleman who was 23 who was diagnosed with schizophrenia within the same year diagnosed with leukemia and for those who don't know leukemia is like a a blood cancer and uh, schizophrenia is a very severe mental health disorder and after he was treated he had full uh, remission of the leukemia bone marrow transplant within (laughs) then his uh, schizophrenia went away and he had no more symptoms and he was fully like seeing hallucinations. And so it really speaks to what we're doing as a systemic, as a whole, like, you know, like that's what I like about positive ecology. It's the, the whole being, the well-being 
of everything. Yeah, it speaks um, to the mind-body connection for sure. Right. right, exactly. And I always tell people, I was like, it all comes, it doesn't all come down, but a lot of it comes down to what we're doing, movement of our body, but what are we feeding our body? And people are like, oh, you know, because a lot of doctors dismiss nutrition. And I say, well, have your patients stop eating and see what happens. <laughs> it really is you are what you eat. If you don't eat, you aren't. <laughs> so it's really straightforward. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I'm curious too, what does, you know, in your, in your book, um, and you talk about, you know, what is the ancient and modern wisdom and of, you know, kind of converging? How does that converge? Can you just give us a little hint? Because I was really intrigued by that. I was like, well, what is the ancient wisdom? Like, what were we ignoring now that we're coming back around to it? Or is there something new on the horizon? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the ancient wisdom is is really returning the goal of life to to, to really be flourishing. And, and philosophers were talking about, you know, back in the day, you know, you choose philosophy schools much like we choose colleges, right? There would be there'd be various college uh, philosophy schools, and they would be their goal would be to teach us how to live better lives. That was the goal, and it still is the goal of philosophy. Now it's unfortunately relegated to abstract discussions among university professors, but the original goal of philosophy is how do you live a better life? How do you live a good life? Uh, you know, the, the problem with philosophy was it didn't have a roadmap to tell you how to do that. It had a bunch of opinions by a bunch of different philosophers, right? Positive psychology, I think, offers some tactical tools and blueprints to flourish, you know, mindfulness, gratitude, resilience, grit, there's, there's a whole host of them and there, there's evidence behind them. Um, but I think positive psychology sometimes gets wrapped up in, you know, the word happy and, you know, it's the cover of Time magazine and all of that stuff. So I tried to combine the original goal of philosophy, which is eudaimonia, flourishing, how to live better with some of the tactical tools that are being uncovered in positive psychology to combine them to a kind of a daily code of optimal living, which I call positive philosophy in the book. And then there's basically a, a you know, a daily action plan of less than 15 minutes that, you know, five aspects that you can do to, to really kind of keep on the path of, of flourishing for, for you, whatever that may be. Can you give an example of your daily action plan? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, it's, one is you work on something that's improving your potential or getting you closer to your fully realized potential, whatever that may be in your, at your stage of life. You know, for a medical student like your daughter, it may just be trying to become the best doctor she can be and, and studying hard at that stage of her life. Um, there's negative visualization for one minute a day. That's, that's extremely powerful to do. And I would encourage everybody in the audience to, to do that. When you're at a stoplight in your car, instead of reaching for your phone to check your email for the hundredth time that day, which is what I do, did used to do, you know, just think about one good thing in your life and then imagine your life without it. And, you know, it's uh, neurons that you know fire together eventually wire together, and so that's as you retrain your brain to think about good things and appreciate more and more of what you have, um, you automatically start noticing them in real time. And so mm -hmm. it becomes a very virtuous feedback loop. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, exercise, anything to get your heart racing. You know, I, I measure heart rate variability uh, in some things. And, um, and then gratitude, uh, either a gratitude letter, you know, once a week or once a month written to somebody, a teacher, a parent, a friend, uh, or three good things three times a week uh, that happened to you and why did they happen. Um, these are, these are kind of simple, but they're really, they have a lot of research behind them in positive psychology. Mm. And so those are just a few of the action things. Yeah. I keep coming back to that negative um, evaluation. So I mean, if you think, I mean, I think of all the many blessings I have and I think of even any of them, I start getting heart palpitations. I'm like, oh, wow, this is very powerful because I think there's an emotional connection when you first see it as your blessing. You're like, ah, oh. and then if it's gone, I mean, the mind is so powerful with visualization. That's it's incredible. Exactly. Yeah, and you, the problem with the three good things, it's a good exercise and it cultivates gratitude, but you get used to it too, mm. right? It's the hedonic adaptation. You get used to doing that same thing. So by tricking your mind up and, and reversing it, it's a, it's, it's a little bit more powerful. Right. Because we're always running away from pain. I think, you know, that's kind of like when I, people like, we'll always focus on, you know, when you're talking about nutrition is like, you know, we focus on not what we're giving up, but what we're gaining. I was like, no, actually, I think they kind of need to focus on the painful things they're going to be removing. <laughs> <laughs> not so much, you know, because I think that is real a bit more motivational um, than looking at, you know, there's always a good stuff too we want to build in, but that pain is a big motivator. I'll tell oh, yeah. you what, if I had a, needed a root canal, I'd rather have that tooth pulled than if I think about, you know, winning a million dollars, that root canal would need to be fixed first. <laughs> right. I, love, I love the expression running away from the bad. That's good. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely running away from the bad. Absolutely. So just one final question. I always like to ask if you had one piece of advice for someone who let's say was like, hmm, this is really interesting. Where would they get more information? I, I will certainly have a link to your book and your website. And so people can look there for more information. But do you have any advice that we might maybe just kind of pull the trigger for someone to, you know, it's like, go searching more for positive ecology or maybe where a good introductory into the value and the power that it may have for them. I think, uh, I think Marty Seligman's book, uh, flourish and authentic happiness.org has a lot of resources in, in uh, okay. positive psychology and well-being. Uh, so certainly browse around there. I think I would encourage everybody to, think about their life and where they are on their scale of flourishing. Um, it, one, one quick thing that they can do is the, is your best life exercise, which is really powerful. Take 15 minutes and write about your life in the future, three years, five years, whatever. M imagine everything going perfectly. Um, you know, no, no obstacles, don't hold back. And then, you know, write it down, write about what that looks like and then compare where you are and what path you're on to where that life is. Uh, because we only get one and it's cliche that life is short, but it is short. And, you know, and there's a, there's a lot that we, that science is uncovering that we can do about it. So I think that's, that's where I would not hold back to try to improve. Everybody can improve their, their uh, well-being. I think that's fabulous advice. And the, the best life exercise. And what's interesting is it 
focuses your mind. It's kind of like if you ever buy a new car, you're looking for a dress or something, and then suddenly like, okay, let's say I'm going to buy a Subaru. And now like everybody has Subarus. Have you noticed? Like, are there, is there like a sale on Subarus? Yeah. <laughs> your mind is like, okay, do I need to focus on that? Okay, I'll focus on that for you. It's the same idea. If you write it down and there's some evidence of written word, being really good, not typed out, but actually writing it down yeah. that will help drive you to that. And there's another book, it's called The One Thing. And it's a pretty good idea to bring it back down to something very, very simple. And just, you know, you, what, this is my goal. If that, of all of that wonderful life that I want to have in, let's say, five years, what's the one thing that would be the most impactful? And then go, okay, what can I do in, on an annual basis that I can do to bring this? And then to a monthly, to a weekly, to a daily, and to right now, to the one thing that I can do now, because that empowers people to break it down into smaller pieces and move towards it. But I love that. I do that with my nutrition folks all the time. That's great. Yeah, it's very, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time. The audience thanks you, and we so appreciate your wisdom and everything that you're doing to help physicians and bring us to a a better place emotionally and mentally in our well-being. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. Really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too.